For those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Stephen Worley. I'm the director of kids ministry and communication here, and for some reason, they let me up here. Um, but uh, you guys get to hear from God's word today uh, as we look at Jonah 2. Uh, before we do that, uh, if you haven't met my family yet, uh, I have a beautiful wife named Janisa, probably in one of the cry rooms right now. Uh, I have a, a three-year-old named Lucy, and then we have two seven-month-old twins named Ezra and Sophie, uh, who are just absolutely adorable. Uh, and who need to sleep more. Uh, but our, our three-year-old's at this stage right now in her life where she loves to hear stories. Uh, she asks Janice and I to tell her stories all the time. Stories from when we were dating, stories of how we got married, stories of uh, when we were children. Uh, and she always asks from that dinner time, uh, around the house, in the car. And if you ever retell a story that you previously told her and forget a detail that you told in the last time, she'll be sure to tell you right away. Uh, but one story I've told her a few times is when I was around six years old, uh, I was in my family's pool behind our house, uh, and I often liked to uh, climb along and hold onto the edge on the inside of the pool, uh, often pretending I was Spider-Man. Uh, and when I was doing that one time, uh, my family warned me, uh, you can do that, just don't go into the deep end and don't let go. Being the obedient child I was, I made my way shimmying into the deep end and I let go and I sank. Uh, and in that time, I didn't think about much besides I needed rescuing. I needed saving. And I think it was my brother or another member of my family that did get me out of that water and did save me. Uh, but the reason I tell that story is we'll be looking at a character in the Bible who's in a very similar situation. Uh, we are looking at the prophet Jonah, who is a man dealing with the wreckage of his choices uh, and his response to, in prayer to God at that time. And we're going to talk about two things. Well, today we'll be talking about uh, what are the marks of true repentance and what does it mean that salvation belongs to the Lord? What are the marks of true repentance and what does it mean that salvation belongs to the Lord? Uh, and, and if you're, you've never stepped foot in a church before today, we're going to say that word repent or repentance a lot. And it can sound like a, an archaic or old word or something that you'll hear someone yelling on a street corner who's holding up a sign that says the end is nigh. But repentance is a good thing. It is a great thing. Uh, and when we say that word, what we really mean is a turning from sin and a turning to God. A turning from disobedience and a turning to worship and obedience to God. And a change of one's heart, mind, and action towards God out of love for Him and trust in Him. So when we talk about repentance, that, that's what we mean. Uh, so to give you guys some context on where we were last month in the book of Jonah. Uh, Dr. Bob Lutz led us through the chapter of Jonah 1, uh, and we saw a man that was called by God, uh, who was sent to the people of Nineveh, uh, and what did he do? He got up and he went the opposite direction. Uh, he was called to obedience, but he ran the other way, and what we talked about then was that God pursues, specifically God pursues his people graciously and mercifully and powerfully. And we ended uh, with Jonah out of the water, or out of the boat, in the water, in the belly of a fish, uh, and that's where we'll pick it up today. But I like to think of Jonah as the prophet who mentally, uh, cognitively understands everything he needs to understand about God. But where his problem is at is emotionally in his heart. So he gets everything he needs to know about God up here. But down here, he has some problems. Uh, so read with me Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Then, the Lord, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. 
Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head, and the roots of the mountains. And I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So, like I said, we're going to be looking through this passage and as we work our way through, we're going to ask ourselves, what are the marks or what are the aspects of true repentance? And we're going to see four of them throughout the passage. And then at the end, we'll circle back and talk about what does it mean that salvation belongs to the Lord. So start with me in verse 1. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Jonah is crying out in prayer from the belly of the fish. And we, we could spend a long time discussing the impossibility of a man surviving three days and three nights in the digestive system, system of a giant fish or whale. Uh, and not just that, but being conscious enough to cry out in prayer pretty coherently. Uh, but it's easy to get hung up on some of these what we might call strange miracles in Scripture, uh, whether it's this or the virgin birth or the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, but in reality, once we've concluded and affirmed the greatest miracle of all time, that God the Son took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and being raised from the dead on the third day so that we, unworthy sinners, might be, have a relationship with him. Once we conclude that, all other miracles in Scripture pale in comparison. All other miracles and miraculous events are an easier pill to swallow once we have come to terms with that. But moving on, for the, the sake of our reading, we could say that Jonah is crying out from his rock bottom. From his rock bottom. Like Psalm 130 says, Out of the depths I cry to you. And much like many of us, myself included, sometimes in a situation of life that's our own doing or not caused by us, I am at my rock bottom, and I have nowhere to look but up to the Lord God in prayer. And instead of running away from God like he did before, Jonah runs to God in prayer. So let's look at Jonah's prayer today. Verse 2 says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, you have heard my voice. And as we read through uh, these verses, we can say one thing for sure. Jonah knew his psalms. Jonah knew his scripture. Because much of verses 2 through 9 are either quotations, paraphrasing, or references of the book of psalms. Uh, one pastor even notes that if you cut verses 2 through 9 out of this passage and you gave it to any random Christian, they would think they're reading a psalm from the book of Psalms. And they wouldn't be wrong to think that. But that leads us to our first mark of true repentance, and that's true repentance is founded in Scripture. True repentance is founded in Scripture. And now when we say that, we're saying that both what we believe about repentance and how we should practically repent found in Scripture. They're based in Scripture. Jonah, throughout this passage, is quoting 
paraphrasing, referencing psalms and prayers. When crisis hits him, what comes out of him is scripture. How should that be for us believers? We have the whole Old and New Testaments inspired by God, breathed out by God, available to us to teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us and equip us in godliness. As believers, we ought to do the same as Jonah, if not more. We should see what Scripture says about repentance, and we should follow the examples of repentance given to us in Scriptures uh, when we are confessing our sins to the Lord and turning from our sins to Him for forgiveness. Now, why do we need to do that? Well, my answer is because if we are looking to turn back to the God that we have offended, we ought to do it on His terms. If we are looking to turn back and to confess our sins to the God that we have offended, we need to turn back to Him on His terms, not ours. So first we see in Scripture what Scripture says about repentance, how we should understand what spiritually happens, what theologically happens, what our attitude should be. And we see that repentance is one of the main messages of Jesus Himself when He says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. We see that John the Baptist, his cousin, says it too. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We see John, uh, we see Peter, the apostle, commanding his people in Acts 3 to repent and turn back from their sins that they may be blotted out. We see God's kindness is what leads us to repentance in Romans 2. We see that it is God who grants or who gives repentance in Acts 11 and 2 Timothy 2. We see that our attitude should be one of sorrow and grief over our sins that leads us to repentance and leads to salvation in 2 Corinthians 7. We see that if we confess our sins in repentance, God will forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness in 1 John 1. We see that all heaven rejoices when a sinner repents in Luke 15. And we see that God still commands his church that he loves to repent in Revelation 2 and 3. Those are just some examples of what Scripture says about repentance. But we also see examples in Scripture of what we ought to say or what we ought to pray or what we ought to cry out to God when we are repenting. We can look at examples in the New Testament where Jesus teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, saying, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We can look at Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the, the Pharisee or the tax collector is standing far off, won't lift up his eyes, but beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. We can look at the book of Psalms. Specifically in the book of Psalms, there are some Psalms called penitential Psalms. Uh, and these are Psalms of repentance that we can read, meditate on, pray, and pray back to God. And if you're taking notes, if you're a note taker, uh, the penitential Psalms are Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. The most famous of this, I think, is Psalm 51, where David, who has slept with another man's wife, created a sinister plot to have that man killed in battle. The man dies, and he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, and he says, this is David saying, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he also says things like, cleanse me, wash me, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew within me a right spirit. Passages like these should shape our words and our prayers to God. And what I'm not saying is that we need to uh, regurgitate these prayers back to God without genuine heart and meaning behind them. But Jesus pushes it back, back against that as well. But that we need to read these passages, understand them, apply them to our hearts and our lives, and even perhaps memorize them, and then genuinely pray them back to God. 
So, true repentance is founded in Scripture. But let's go back to verse 2 and 3, where he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He starts off with calling out to the Lord. Uh, and that's a theme seen throughout from the Bible from Genesis 4 to 2 Timothy. It's most famously seen in Romans 10 where it says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And throughout Scripture, it's a phrase that represents worshipful, personal, trusting prayer to the Lord God for salvation and forgiveness. Worshipful, personal, trusting prayer to the Lord God for salvation and forgiveness. Another point to note here is that Jonah is beginning and ending his prayer with quotations from Psalm 3, but we'll get to that second quote towards the end of our time. Uh, he references this place called Sheol, uh, or the pit, or the grave, the place of no return. A and we might understand this as the post-death waiting place for all people uh, prior to Christ's death and resurrection. But uh, does this mean that Jonah is dead uh, during this time of prayer? Probably not. I would say no. Uh, but one commentator clarifies his use of that word by saying that Jonah is experiencing a death-like fear that grips him to the very soul. He is terrified. A death-like fear that grips him to the very soul. And all throughout this passage, there's mention of deep or the depth of the seas, the seas, the waves, breakers, and billows. And all of these repeat the theme of being tossed around, being unable to breathe, being unable to come up for air. He is overwhelmed, and he is hopeless. But in verse 2, it says that God answered him. God heard him. This is a simple truth, but how great is it that we believe in a God who hears us? A God who hears the cries of his people. A God who hears the silent prayers of a wife who's not sure she wants to stay with her husband, and is on the edge of walking away. A God who hears a man whose life is gripped by fear and anxiety. A God who hears a mother who has had a long, too long of a day with her children and needs a break. A God who hears a teenager who is silently struggling with addiction and shame. A God who hears a father praying the for the salvation of his unsaved son. A God who hears the teenager who is also silently wondering what he's doing with his life. A God who hears the employee who's struggling with his boss, who's pressing him to compromise his morals or his convictions and violate his conscience for the sake of saving face or making a sale. God hears you. God hears you. But one thing we can see throughout these verses is that Jonah is pointing to God as the one who is responsible for what has happened. He says, you heard me. You cast me into the deep. Your waves your billows. Now, wait, when we hear that, we might think, didn't the sailors toss Jonah into the ocean? Weren't they the ones that threw him off the boat? Yes, but what Jonah's recognizing is something important here, and that leads us to our, our second mark, is that true repentance recognizes God for who he is. True repentance recognizes God for who he is. And when we say that, what we mean is we recognize for God who he is, and we confess and understand that God is holy and the sovereign creator and king of the universe. When we've sinned, we have not offended a megalomaniac. We have not offended a criminal. We've not offended an impersonal, unfeeling force. We've not offended a peer or an equal. No, we have offended the eternal, all-powerful, in-control king of all creation. So how does Jonah do this? Throughout this passage, Jonah recognizes that God is the God who hears and answers. In verse 2, 
God is the ultimate cause and primary agent of all events in verses 3 and verse 10. God is the God whose temple, his place of his presence and his worship, is holy and sacred in verse 4 and 7. God is the God who brings life and saves in verse 6 and 9. God is good and kind and faithful and merciful in verse 8. Jonah doesn't have a problem, problem intellectually coming to terms with who God is. And we saw that in Jonah 1, 2, when, when the sailors ask him uh, who he is, who, what God he worships, he confesses that he fears the God who made the sea and the dry land in the middle of a storm sent by the very God that he's trying to run away from. We see him have emotional problems continually with God in Jonah 4 when he knows intellectually and he understands that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and forgiving, and that's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place, because he knew God would relent and God would have mercy. Jonah recognizes God for who he is and what he's done, but I would say he does not delight in God for who he is and what he's done, but we should. For us, the way we do this, the way we recognize God is we often start our prayers, uh, including prayers of repentance, with a recognition of God's character and God's power. When we teach our kids over in kids' worship or kids' Sunday school how to pray, often we'll teach them the Acts prayer, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, or, or more often we do the, the pray prayer, P-R-A-Y, that stands for praise, repent, ask, and yield. And those are methods that we try and teach our children, uh, and they both start with adoration and praise of who God is and what he's done before ever getting to a confession and repentance of sins. When we read the Lord's Prayer from Jesus, he, his first line is that God is recognized as our Heavenly Father whose name is holy. The same goes for all of those penitential psalms I mentioned earlier. When we pray, we repent, but we start with God's character and God's power. We start with God's goodness, kindness, patience, Wisdom, sovereignty, holiness, mercy, faithfulness, truthfulness, gentleness, justice, and love. We recognize who we are praying to, the God who is mighty to save and delights in his people, the God who can do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, and the God who sits enthroned as the king forever. So, true repentance recognizes God for who he is and what he's done. Back to verse 4, it says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I again shall look upon your holy temple. Now when Jonah talks about being driven away from God's sight, we might just think of that as couples in an argument when they say, get out of my face, I don't want to see you right now. But it's a bit more than that. In Scripture, God's sight and His presence are a representation of His favor and blessing. So being cast out or driven from God's sight is being driven out of God's favor. And that is not a good thing. Jonah says, I shall again. He, he says, he will surely indeed look again at God's holy temple. The set-apart place of God's presence for his people. In a sacred place of worship to the Lord God. He is confident in God's mercy and God's might. That even in the darkness, in the middle of a fish, in the middle of the sea, he will see God's temple. Then verse 5 says, the waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Jonah's going back to his dire situation, 
Uh, and throughout this prayer, he goes back and forth between God and his situation, God and his situation. And he uses words like closed over me, surrounded me, wrapped around my head, closed upon me to describe his helpless and hopeless situation. It's claustrophobic, it's anxiety-inducing, it's nerve-wracking. Uh, and personally, it reminds me of many times I might have had a, an anxiety attack and the same emotions and feelings and sensations I've had. But God brought his life up from this helpless and hopeless situation. H.B. Charles, Charles Jr. summarizes these verses by saying, God can reach you no matter how low you sink, and God can deliver you before it's too late. Verse 8 says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, I'll just confess, I had some difficulty studying this verse. Uh, I couldn't find a very consistent answer to the purpose of this verse, but one, some commentators uh, agreed that verse 8 is a bit of a warning to others who are reading this prayer. Essentially, Jonah is saying, don't make the same mistake I've made. Don't waste your life on useless things. Don't waste your life on man-made idols like the sailors from chapter 1 were in the middle of a storm uh, when they should have been praying to the uncreated creator of the universe. Don't waste your life on pointless plans like trying to run away from an all-present, ever-knowing God like Jonah did. Don't waste your life on a job that's causing you to neglect your God-given responsibility of caring for the emotional and spiritual well-being of your family, your wife and your children. Or better yet, Jesus says, don't waste your life on treasure on this earth where moth and rust destroy. You, you're pursuing nothing that leads to nothingness. When you could be pursuing a God who is kind and merciful and good and faithful, you could be seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. Verses 4 through 8 lead us to our, our third mark of true repentance, and that true repentance acknowledges our sin and our situation. True repentance acknowledges our sin and our situation. Once we recognize God for who he is and what he's done, we also have to acknowledge our own sin, our own debt, the situation we've gotten ourselves in. And I would say Jonah's better at recognizing his situation than his sin. Uh, he recognizes his situation when he says, the waters close over me to take my life, the deep surrounded me, the weeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down in a land whose bars close upon me forever is recognizing the mess that he's in. But the closest he gets to recognizing his own sin is verse 4 and verse 8. He acknowledges that he's being driven out of God's sight, which is only a result of sin and disobedience and a rejection of God's call. He acknowledges that pursuing worth, worthless vanities and idols leads to forsaking one's hope of experiencing God's love and mercy. But he doesn't say, God, I have sinned against you and your holy, good, and loving call in my life. We'll see him continue to be aware of his situation uh, without acknowledging his sin. In chapter 4, when he confesses his anger and his bitterness towards God for relenting and for showing mercy to the point of wanting to die, but still not recognizing that as wrong. But we can take it a step further than Jonah does in this chapter. We can look at examples of heroes of the faith like the Apostle Paul, who calls himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. Or Psalm 32.5 that says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, I said. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Or Psalm 38.4 that says, My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Or Psalm 51.3 and 4 that says, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
The prophet Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And even the bold apostle Peter, when meeting Jesus for the first time, falls at his knees and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We can be bold, honest, specific, and sorrowful in our confessing of our sins to God in prayer. He knows them already. There's no skeletons in our closet that we can hide from God. We can acknowledge the mess that's come about from our choices or our pattern of choices that's come about from our pride, our dishonesty, our selfishness, or our foolishness. And we can bring this all before God in prayer and repentance, knowing that He forgives. So true repentance acknowledges our sin and our situation. But back to verse 9, it says, But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will say, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah ends his prayer with praise and thanksgiving, still in the belly of the fish, in the middle of the ocean, nowhere near land. And he talks about sacrificing, vowing, paying. Essentially, he's talking about taking an oath or promising to obey and worship God. And we know that he keeps this oath because in the next chapter, God tells him to rise and go to Nineveh. And Jonah rises and he goes to Nineveh. He's keeping his word. And then he er ends his prayer by saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. And, and I want to spend a bit more time on that one towards the end. Uh, but for now, we'll move on to our, our third or our fourth mark of true repentance. And that true repentance looks to God for salvation. And when we say that, uh, we say that we look to God for salvation. It's a bit of a repeat of those first two. Uh, it's looking at Scripture to see how God uses repentance in our life. And it's looking at God's character and His heart towards repentance. Throughout this prayer, Jonah has confidence that God will answer him, God hears him, and that he would see God's holy temple again. And that God brings his life up and that salvation belongs to the Lord. He doesn't end his prayer by discussing his situation, but he ends his prayer discussing salvation. We also can pray and repent with confidence, knowing that the Lord saves and forgives. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Ephesians 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And once again, 1 John 1, 4 reminds us that God forgives us when we repent. 2 Corinthians 7.10 and Acts 11.18 remind us that repentance leads to salvation. We don't stay in a place of sorrow over our sin and our situation, but we are forgiven and given assurance of our pardon through Scripture's promise and Christ's perfect work. So true repentance looks to God for salvation. But let's go uh, back to verse 10 before we circle back to verse 9. It says, And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Our passage ends with a reversal of how chapter 1 of Jonah was, reminding us who's really in control. Uh, not Jonah, but it's God. God speaks, not to Jonah this time, but God speaks to the fish. And the fish is quicker to obey God than Jonah was. The fish vomits and spits Jonah up onto dry land, and the word dry land here is actually also a repeat from chapter 1, where Jonah, when he's asked by the sailors who he was, he says, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Recognizing that God is the God 
who made the sea and the dry land, and he's ironically attempting to run away from that creator God on the sea that he made, away from the dry land that he made. And now our chapter ends with Jonah ready to complete his mission. But we'll see chapter 3 and chapter 4 in a few weeks when Jonah goes to Nineveh, and there's the greatest revival of all time, and we'll get to hear that from Pastor Caleb. But now we go to what does salvation belongs to the Lord mean? What does salvation belongs to the Lord mean? That is a beautiful phrase. It is a rich phrase, and I think we need to just spend time unpacking that phrase. The words here is two words, salvation, deliverance, and the name Yahweh. It's God's covenant name with his people. Just two words and a preposition in between them that can mean belonging to, of, by, in a manner of, or from. Uh, scholars say it has a wide semantic range. But that's why you'll see translations of this verse saying, salvation is of the Lord, salvation is from the Lord, salvation comes from the Lord. It, to give you some ideas, it's the same preposition here that we see in the book of Psalms when there is a psalm that comes from David, a psalm of David, a psalm that belongs to David. So just like David is the author of those many psalms, God is the author of salvation. And, and the book of Hebrews calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. And I would say uh, these two words are closely tied throughout all of Scripture and nowhere more closely tied than in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus' name means Joshua or Yeshua. It means the Lord saves, Yahweh saves, Yahweh is salvation. And an angel tells Joseph before Jesus is born that he was going to be named this because he would save his people from their sins in Matthew chapter 1. So what better way to remind us as post-resurrection believers reading this passage, that this passage in this verse points us to Jesus than recognizing the, the Savior that was sent, whose name is the Lord of salvation. Now, Jonah pulls this verse from Psalm 3, the Psalm of David, where David's running away from his son Absalom, who's attempted to usurp the throne and rebel against him, and he's surrounded by enemies, and he is looking for deliverance from his enemies. But actually, the New Testament repeats this verse, and we actually heard it a bit earlier in Revelation chapter 7. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, from peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lord, or before the, the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what this means, or what this implies, is that one can only be saved by the Lord and his perfect work. The way Charles Spurgeon summarizes this verse, or talks about this verse throughout his sermon, is he says, The plan of salvation is entirely of God. The execution of salvation is of the Lord. The application of salvation is of the Lord. The sustaining work of salvation in any man's heart is of the Lord. And the ultimate perfection of salvation is of the Lord. Every part of salvation belongs to God. Everything that needed to be done for us to be saved and accomplished was accomplished in, through Jesus Christ. Everything that needed to be accomplished for us to be saved and made right with God and have eternal life was accomplished in Jesus' perfect person and work. That's why Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
That's why Jesus says in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that there's only one mediator between God and mankind, Christ Jesus. And that's why we can rest in the truth and the reality that when Jesus said it on the cross, it is finished, that it is truly finished. The perfect work of our redemption is complete. This also means that we are not saved by our own work or by Jesus plus anything else. As Ephesians 2 says, it's not our own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our salvation doesn't come from our rule-keeping. It doesn't come from our moral living. It doesn't come from our trying our best. It doesn't come from our being authentic or real or being kind to others or any number of good things. But salvation comes from the Lord's gracious, undeserved gift of Jesus Christ. And that's why this verse says, does, that's why this verse doesn't say salvation belongs to us. That's why this verse doesn't say salvation belongs to our works or salvation belongs to our people. But it says salvation belongs to the Lord. So if you are hearing this today and you've already declared Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, been baptized, and are seeking to obey him in a Christ-centered community called the church— then my challenge to you today is, one, reflect on God's salvation with gratitude, thanksgiving, and praise. And two, seek to live a life of continual repentance. Read God's word. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal sin in your life, to reprove you, to correct you. Surround yourself with biblical community in a church, in church membership who can point out blind spots in your life, who can exhort you, who can encourage you, who can admonish you, who can come alongside you and spur you on to love and good works in Christ Jesus. If you're hearing this for the first time today and you've never stepped foot in a church, you might be wondering, why do I need to be saved? How can I be saved? And here is why and how and what you need to know. And some of these words aren't my own, uh, but a lot of people have said it a lot better than I have. God is a holy God. He is holy, good, and loving, and He created all things and all people for His glory. God is the King of all creation, and He made us to know Him and to love Him. But starting with Adam and with Eve, and throughout all human history and all mankind, we have sinned and disobeyed God's commands. We have broken God's laws. I have sinned. You have sinned. We have all sinned. But God, and God being the creator and king, is just and right to punish our sin. And we are fully deserving of that punishment, which is separation from him. But God, and that's a phrase throughout scripture, but God is merciful, gracious, and loving. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life that we could never live, to die on a cross the death that we deserve, to be raised on the third day. And he did all of this so that when we repent or when we turn from our sins and we believe or we trust in him as our Lord and Savior, we can be saved from the punishment of our sin. We will receive the free gift of God's salvation. And then after that, we will seek to live our lives, to love him to serve him and to enjoy him, both in this life and the eternal life that he gives us.
This is the good news. This is the gospel. So if you're hearing this today for the first time and realizing that this is what you need to do, the Bible calls that, this, it says, this is the day of salvation. It says, don't harden your hearts. Turn from your sins and turn to God. If you need to talk to someone, we have members and elders and people who will be all throughout these hallways and in this worship center that will be happy to talk to you and pray with you. But today, we remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. Today, we proclaim in Boynton Beach, Florida, that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And today, we get to see how great it is when someone recognizes and proclaims that Jesus Christ has saved them from their sin through the act of baptism. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are good, and you are kind, and you are gentle and patient. We, we praise you and we thank you for how you've loved us, for how you've uh, worked in our lives and been uh, gracious and merciful to save us, to draw us to yourself, to point us to your Son. Uh, I pray that we would all have hearts of repentance, of confession, turning from our sin, recognizing that we have wronged you, and recognizing that you are merciful and forgiving. I pray that if there are people in this room uh, who don't yet know you, who have not yet made that decision, who, who have not yet turned from their sins, uh, that you would call them, that they would turn from their sins and run to you, run to Jesus Christ and his perfect work. I ask that you would be with our church body, that you would continue to build us up in love and good works, that you would continue to build us up so that we might stir each other up to good works, that we might call out blind spots, that we might challenge each other, that we might sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. Not for our glory, not for our namesake, but for your glory. God, we, we pray that all of this will be in your will, and we pray that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in First Baptist Boynton Beach as it is in heaven. We pray this for your glory, in Jesus Christ's perfect name, amen.